Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The notorious Georgia State Prison and its inmates had a host of problems before the facility shuttered for good. But just down the road in Glenville, Georgia, Smith State Prison has continued to operate with considerably less scrutiny, despite its overwhelmingly obvious violence and its out-of-control operations. Georgia State Prison in Reedsville closed for general operations in early 2022, though it is routinely still used as a transfer hub for inmates coming and going from other jurisdictions. As the 100-year-old prison, once home to death row and the electric chair, was shuttered, the Georgia Department of Corrections announced that it was contemplating building an even larger maximum security site in Tattnall County to the tune of several hundred million dollars, which would return the number of prisons in the small rural county to three. Even before the closing of Georgia State Prison, Smith State Prison in Glenville dominated the court dockets in Tattnall County Superior Court. Of the inmate prison cases that resulted in additional criminal charges in Tattnall County from Georgia State Prison, Rogers State Prison and Smith State Prison over the last three years, a whopping 70.3% of them originated from Smith State Prison. Eight people have died from a fire in a prison in Iran. Six more continue in serious but stable condition. The Iranian state news agency reported a total of 65 injured, while sources inside the prison told the BBC that the number was higher. The fire took place at Avon Prison in Tehran on Saturday, October 15th, following what officials reported as an escape attempt that sparked fighting among people incarcerated there. Avon Prison, which holds many people who are considered political prisoners, has been the object of repeated critique by NGOs and foreign government for human rights abuses. Reports of the source of the fire differ widely. In contrast to the official explanation of a prison break and fighting, journalists claimed prison authorities set the blaze on purpose. They noted that a high-profile political prisoner, a son of Iran's former president, had been sent home just before the fire. The official account of the fire also made no reference to the broader political situation in Iran still symbolically ablaze with a fifth week of protests over the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old arrested in Kurdistan province for failing to adhere to state religious dress code requirements. Amini's death in police custody sparked protest across Iran, particularly among women and girls. Protesters marched, chanted, burned hijabs, and cut their hair, inspiring solidarity protests throughout the world. Hundreds of arrested protesters have been sent to Avon Prison. Prison officials claim there is no relationship between the protests. The protesters detained in Avon, other political prisoners, and the fire. Governor Greg Abbott said on Thursday that he and other state leaders are pulling $359.6 million out of the state prison system's budget to fund his Operation Lone Star border security operation through the next 10 months. 
So far, more than $4 billion have been spent to keep thousands of Department of Public Safety troopers and Texas National Guard members stationed along the Texas-Mexico border and other areas of the state. This latest infusion was among $874.6 million in emergency budget transfers authorized by Abbott at the request of the Texas Legislative Budget Board. The impact of this shift in funding on the chaotic Texas prison system is not immediately clear. A man who spent more than 38 years behind bars for a 1983 murder and two attempted murders has been released from a California prison after long untested DNA evidence pointed to a different person, the Los Angeles County District Attorney said. The conviction and life sentence of Morris Hastings, 69, were vacated during an October 20th court hearing at the request of prosecutors and his lawyers from the Los Angeles Innocence Project at California State University. I prayed for many years that this day would come, Hastings said at a news conference on Friday. I am not pointing fingers. I am not standing up here a bitter man, but I just want to enjoy my life now while I have it. The district attorney, George Gascon, said in a statement, what has happened to Mr. Hastings is a terrible injustice. The justice system is not perfect. And when we learn of new evidence, which causes us to lose confidence in a conviction, it is our obligation to act swiftly. Up next, we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. At least two prisoners at the Pine Grove Correctional Centre in Saskatchewan, Canada, are on hunger strike in protest of unsanitary drinking water and lack of access to programming. The water tastes and smells like raw sewage, Faith Eagle, one of the strikers, said in an interview with CTV. And it's the only thing that you can drink, so when you drink it, you'll get a bloated stomach or a stomachache, but you have to drink it because you need water. According to CTV, Eagle says she has refused food for five weeks and only had broth and juice when she feels weak. She also said she's been denied programming and visits from elders. According to Sherry Mayer, an organiser with Beyond Prison Walls Canada, Faith Eagle has released the following demands. 1. Better treatment by staff. 2. Access to cultural practices and elders. 3. Better water and food. 4. To be treated like a human. 5. She wants to see the senior staff to resign or be reassessed for the ability to do their job. 6. She wants to see team leaders who are Indigenous. 7. She wants Indigenous representation inside as she does not have any. Two prisoners at the Eli State Prison in Nevada have been accused of mailing an unknown powdery white substance to a Las Vegas courthouse in two separate envelopes in early October. Although the exact makeup of the substances is not known, one has been deemed, quote, harmless, while the other is still being processed. No one was harmed by the substances. It is unknown at this time why the prisoners chose to attack the courthouse or if the act was intentional. On the morning of Tuesday, October 4th, a disturbance was reported at Clark County Corrections in Vancouver, Washington. 
According to reports, prisoners on a housing unit who were upset with disciplinary measure tried to flood the unit. Shortly after, two prisoners started a fire on the unit. Those two prisoners were charged with arson. No injuries were reported. There were minor property damage. On Tuesday, October 4th, four prisoners escaped from the Ottawa County Jail in Miami, Oklahoma. They escaped through a sally port door that was open during contractor work on the building. One prisoner was immediately recaptured while leaving the jail, another the day after. Two prisoners were recaptured on Friday, October 7th. On the evening of October 6th, two prisoners attempted to escape the Scott County Juvenile Detention Center in Davenport, Iowa. During the escape attempt, one prisoner held a staff's arm down to prevent them from calling 911. They also threatened other staff to unlock doors. In the affidavit of two prisoners' arrests, it stated that they, quote, along with multiple others, did knowingly engage in a riot inside the government facility where property damage and assaults occurred, end quote. No other information has been released of the riot and other prisoner involvement. Both prisoners have been charged with assault and third-degree kidnapping. On October 10th, two detainees escaped from the Tattnall County Jail in Georgia. According to authorities, the pair fled from the recreation yard. At the time of this writing, three weeks after the escape, no information about the two escapees has been released publicly. Tattnall County Jail did not immediately respond to requests for further information. On Tuesday, October 11th, Two prisoners attempted to escape Pima County Jail in Tucson, Arizona. According to the Pima County Sheriff's Department, the two prisoners faked overdoses, were taken to the hospital, and then tried to flee the hospital. They were both recaptured immediately at the hospital and charged with second-stage felony escape. Perilous has reported on the conditions of Pima County Jail in the past, particularly the high amount of prisoner deaths in the facility. For more information, visit perilouschronicle.com. On the morning of Sunday, October 16th, prisoners protested not being served enough food for breakfast at the Canadian County Jail in El Reno, Oklahoma. According to reports, several prisoners assaulted a guard by taking his defense spray and using it on him and then assaulted two other guards. Tactical teams were called and flashbangs were allegedly used to end the disturbance. On Saturday, October 22nd, a group of at least 12 juvenile detainees took control of and then destroyed their unit at the Indian River Juvenile Corrections Facility in Ohio. The group also gained access to a staff computer, logged into Facebook, and live streamed themselves celebrating while destroying prison infrastructure. They smashed out the unit's interior windows and then smashed apart furniture and hurled it into the area outside the windows. They also found a cache of candy bars, which they ate in celebration. According to authorities, 12 detainees were arrested following the incident. On Monday, October 24th, a group of detainees in the Cook County Jail in Illinois refused trays from the mess hall in a collective act of defiance. According to a family member of a striker who spoke with Perilous, the strike was organized in protest of the harsh and, in some cases, retaliatory COVID-19 restrictions undertaken by the jail. According to a public information officer with the Cook County Jail, at least 43 individuals participated in the strike, 
which lasted one day, with several individuals continuing on for two additional days. Strikers declined an interview, citing fear of retaliation for speaking out, but did say that the jail had been using harsh COVID-19 restrictions in order to cancel programming and restrict detainee movement in order to cover for understaffing. This allegation could not be independently verified. On the evening of October 25th, a minor disturbance was reported at the Ottawa County Jail in Miami, Oklahoma. According to the Ottawa County Sheriff's Office, prisoners were upset with disciplinary actions regarding contraband and started bursting windows. Allegedly, pepper spray was threatened but not deployed. No injuries were reported. Earlier this month, as Perilous tracked, two prisoners escaped from this jail. There was also an uprising at this jail on August 22nd of this year regarding access to outside communications. On Friday, October 28th, a prisoner transport bus driving from Houston to Louisiana broke down in Livingston, Texas. As the bus stopped to be repaired, two prisoners escaped the bus, allegedly removed an unsecured gun from the bus, and fled. They were recaptured shortly after. Both prisoners are being held at Polk County Jail. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. For our show this week, we share the second part of a conversation between Focus Initiative's Jaquerta and Sincere. Sincere spent 13 years in Indiana prisons and now organizes in Indianapolis with other formerly incarcerated people. And today, Sincere continues to speak about her experience in a women's facility. Here they are. With the situations with different officers, how did they act when it came to people who were mentally ill or mentally depressed? I mean, did you see any type of uh, treatment against people who weren't mentally well? Yeah. Uh, they usually try to keep those people, um, as I would say, doped up. Um, they would give them, like I said, Thorazine and other mm-hmm. medications to keep them um, just sleep, sleep all day and mm-hmm. all night, drooling all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, if they had a, if they didn't comply to what they told them after, you know, the medication, then they would either be shipped off somewhere or put into SQ just to keep them out of mm-hmm. the way. I know a big problem that I didn't like when I was there was seeing officers uh, try to keep people separated. Now, I know that it's important that, you know, things have to be in a uniform procedure, you know, and maybe this dorm isn't allowed to consort with people in this dorm. But it seems like when I was there and what I saw, you know, it seems like they didn't want people to even be talking to one another like in the same proximity. And I know that, I mean, guys weren't allowed to, you know, if someone hears good news or something and you say, oh man, that's great. And you hug somebody or, or, or anything like that. That was a big problem. And I know that even more so than men, uh, a lot of times, a lot of women have a communication style of touching, hugging each other, showing support. Uh, how was that greeted? Well, was that allowed or? 
Absolutely not. It was not allowed. It was not allowed. And that was like one of the number one rules that you learned early was to keep your hands to yourself. Mm-hmm. Keep your um, endure endearment terms to yourself. Keep your um, any kind of love. Any I could say I hate you all day. I could say I was I want to kill you. Um, I'll kick you. I'll punch you. But if I said I love you, um, I want to be with you. Um, you know, any of those terms would be um, um, banned. For life so far, <laughs> um, you were not allowed to hug or if somebody passed away in your family, you got a phone call um, and you you were not allowed to get a hug. You were not allowed to if you cried too much, then that was a sign that maybe something was wrong with you and you might have to be sent to isolation. Um, SQ. um Things like that. So you weren't allowed to touch. You weren't allowed to show any kind of emotion. It's like de, you know, dehumanization. dehumanization. It was so hard for me when I got out to be able to have somebody love me and touch me. And my aunt, um, I was staying with her for a while. Um, this is really emotional for me. Um, she knows. She just told me like, "Hey, you need to calm it down." Nobody's going to hurt you. Um, I can hug you. Um, things like that. So that was the most, um, as a woman, we're nurturing. You know, no no matter, you know, how tough you think or whatever, we're nurturing people. We like to hug. We like to um, be able to show compassion to others. It's just natural. And we weren't allowed to do that. And some people are still, um, you know, yeah, traumatized um, by that, which brings me to, you know, institutionalization, you know, doing the same thing every single day for 13 years at the same time, not willingly. I never, act, nobody asked me, you know, to um, do anything, um, to working for free. Anything. You know, basically working for 35 cents a day, you know, so um, that was the main thing as in Rockville with the um, community that I lived in for us to be able to support each other. Um, We came up with like families, you know, um, moms, aunts, grandmas, um, you know, started being a family because the things that were going on within the community, we had to, you know, survive in there to be able to, you know, sit where I am right now to be able to tell the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a process that has been taught to them that reminds you constantly, you know. You can say, hey, uh, my name's Justin Huerta. You were looking for me. What's your number? I don't never want to know your name. Mail call. I'm calling your number out, you know. So that's the first thing, you know. I'm taking your name from you. I remember one time I had a uh, a hunger strike because they wouldn't move me from this facility. And it was time for me to go, you know, denying me the right that I had earned. The, the patron who ran it, he called me into his office and said, you've been on this hunger strike for two days. Um... You're leaving me no choice. I'm going to have to file charges on you, you know, for damage of state property. 
And I said, I didn't touch your door. I didn't touch the windows. I didn't do nothing. He said, no, I'm talking about you. <laughs> You're damaging property of the state. But getting back to the, uh, uh, I want to talk about coming out now. Mm-hmm. All right. Your situation and as well as uh, other women that you've seen come out of these systems, women who have experienced, like we say, the dehumanization, the inability to get support from other people who are in their environment. And if you try to assist somebody, you'll be punished too. Whoever the person is who's trying to help, they're getting punished too for trying to help another individual. It doesn't matter that you were trying to help that person, you know. Um, so people who come out of those situations and those traumatic circumstances, especially women, what, what, what's that process like? Well, I can tell you a little bit of both. Um, I know when I came out, I was institutionalized. Uh, How long did you do now? 13 years. 13 straight. Yes. Okay. Um, that was in and out, you know, dealing oh. with parole. Um, you know, you're not allowed to be around felons, but I was just in prison where I made a family with felons that are getting out and they're doing things. And that was mainly my communication. So um, after being gone for so long, um, I really didn't have many friends that were on the outside. So I relied on the family that I had on the inside. And, um, you know, parole officers, um, probation officers, they really don't understand that is mainly with the same agenda, um, you know, do what I say and everything will be all right. My parole officer even told me that, hey, if you do what I tell you to do, everything will be fine. You know, don't steer away from what I told you. It was hard. It was so hard. Um, I, at that point, you know, I was trying to do the best I could, but my mental health wasn't right. And I knew something was wrong with the things I had been through because I couldn't, um, I, they just threw me back into society, basically. Um, you know, when my mind wasn't really healed from anything, everything I had just went through, and then I'm going through other things like the internet, um, how to apply for a job, dealing with people, um, not asking, can I go to the bathroom when I'm at work? Um, Walmart, they have 14 different coffees when I've been drinking the same coffee for 13 years. (laughs) Um, The fashion, um, family members, um, everybody who said that I couldn't, that I wouldn't, and I can't. So I got a lot of doors slammed in my face. I had a, a lot of people tell me that I wasn't worth it, um, all of that. And, you know, through it all, I just had to take a deep breath and take time for me. So when I realized that I was feeling um, an emotion, I addressed it. You know, when I thought that I couldn't made it, make it, I made it. Um, so... I reached out to everybody that helped me were felons. Everybody that I reached out to had did time. Um, They were doing good in good positions at jobs. They were coming in early and leaving late, you know, just so I could come in, you know. And then on the flip side, I've experienced people who've gotten out and couldn't deal with the pain, couldn't deal with... I lost my mom, I lost my brother, I lost my aunt, I lost all of those people while I was in prison. And, you know, if 
it's not like you can deal with a death in prison. Because, like I said, if you cry too much, then they think something's wrong with you and you might get isolated or, you know, whatever that officer, whatever that officer feels is needed at that time. So I suppress my emotions. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that at the end of the day, certain people deal with certain situations differently with their pain. People go to drugs, they go to alcohol, they go to uh, prostitution, they go to, you know, back robbing again, back selling drugs again, um, living on the street homeless or just straight walking down the street like out of their mind. So um, I've seen it all. I've seen, you know, success. I've seen people, you know, walking down the street like, is that my friend from prison? <laughs> you know, so it can go either way. And it looks it looks like we're winning at this point, you know, with successful people that are coming out of prison and changing their mindset. Um, but there's also a lot of people who are um, subjected to these things that make them who they are right now. Right. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult process. You were talking about your experience. Uh do you know of women who came out and um it didn't go as well? Their reacclimation into society? Yeah, um I have a friend Brandy. We got out the same day and uh she went to a um a recovery home and I went to a hotel and we both, um, um, I ended up staying out and she ended up going back 18 months later. And the reason why she went back, cause she went back to the same things, mm -hmm. drugs. She went back to the streets mm -hmm. and she, after a while, after your PO or parole officer or uh, whoever's in authority over you, after they've had their, fist in your face for so long nine times out of ten where i hear from my friends is i'm ready to go back i'm done i do not i can't deal with this no more i do not want to deal with it she just told me to do x y and z knowing i can't do that or i'm doing so good and then they knock me right back down so that's pretty much how it goes. You making a decision to just say, forget it, I'm done with it. I can't take it no more. I just did two or three years in prison or I just did 15 years in prison. I don't know if you guys heard of Paula Cooper. Mm -hmm. um, she um, she did a lot of time in, in prison, um, like over, what, 35, 40 years in prison. And um, she came out and killed herself. So the the abuse and the torture and the, you know, whatever it was that got to her to the point where she committed suicide after she was free. It's something, you know, to really think about. Mm -hmm. Definitely. This conversation was hosted by IDOC Watch and Focus Initiatives. Thanks to everyone who helped with the show. We'll have a link to our previous episode with Sincere in our show notes.
This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.